A reading from the book of Exodus. The whole Israelite community set out from Elam and came to the desert of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai, on the 15th day of the second month after they had come out of Egypt. In the desert, the whole community grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The Israelites said to them, If only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. There we sat around pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted. But you have brought us out into this desert to starve this entire assembly to death. Then the Lord said to Moses, I will rain down bread from heaven for you. The people are to go out each day and gather enough for that day. In this way, I will test them and see whether they will follow my instructions. On the sixth day, they are to prepare what they bring in, and that is to be twice as much as to gather on the other days. So Moses and Aaron said to all the Israelites, In the evening you will know that it was the Lord who brought you out of Egypt, and in the morning you will see the glory of the Lord, because he has heard your grumbling against him. Who are we that you should grumble against us? Moses also said, You will know that it was the Lord when he gives you meat to eat in the evening and all the bread you want in the morning, because he has heard your grumbling against him. Who are we? You are not grumbling against us, but against the Lord. Then Moses told Aaron, Say to the entire Israelite community, Come before the Lord. He has heard your grumbling. While Aaron was speaking to the whole Israelite community, they looked toward the desert, and there was a glory of the Lord appearing in the cloud. Then the Lord said to Moses, I have heard the grumbling of the Israelites. Tell them, at twilight you will eat meat, and the morning you will be filled with bread. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You have heard that it was said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. If you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to that person. Then come and offer your gift. These words of Jesus come from the Sermon on the Mount. And the Sermon on the Mount depicts the behavior of the new people that God was creating for himself, a kingdom people, a new people that's described in the opening chapters of uh, the book of Acts that we've been reading these past weeks. The question is whether they will live up to the standard Jesus set for them in his teaching. Will they reconcile with one another when one causes another offense? Will they turn the other cheek? Will they go the extra mile? In chapter 5, the fledgling community came under attack in two ways. First, from inside, Ananias and Sapphira conspired to deceive the church and so to subvert it from within. And second, from outside, uh, the apostles were arrested 
and persecuted by the religious leaders in Jerusalem. And while they responded to these two kinds of attacks with discernment and faith, in chapter 6, they're going to face a third attack, again from within, but which is much more subtle. So subtle, in fact, that many would not even recognize that this is an attack. And yet what happens is just as likely to undermine the church community as either of these other things. And the attack is grumbling. So if you have a Bible with you, turn with me to Acts chapter 6. I'm going to read verses 1 to 7. Acts 6, beginning at verse 1. In those days, when the number of disciples was increasing, the Hellenistic Jews, that is the Greek Jews among them, complained against the Hebraic Jews, that is the Israeli Jews, because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So the twelve gathered all the disciples together and said, it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. Brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you, who are known to be full of the Spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them and will give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. This proposal pleased the whole group. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. Also Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenaeus, and Nicholas from Antioch, a convert to Judaism. They presented them to the apostles, who prayed and laid their hands on them. So the word of God spread, the number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Will you pray with me? Lord, as we come to this really challenging passage this afternoon, We ask that we would be able to open our minds and our hearts and our wills to you. Lord, speak to us and help us to have the courage to respond to what you say. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Some years ago, I read a book called Natural Church Development, Uh, It says that if you do the eight things described in that book, that God will grow your church. Church growth will be automatic. He doesn't have a choice. It's a nice idea, but it isn't true. No matter what we do, we cannot force God to act. Whatever we do, God will do what he wills. The church can't get God to do what we want him to do. He will do what he chooses to do. But what we do can hinder God acting, or it can clear the way for God to act if he chooses. Let me say that again. What we do can hinder God acting or it can clear the way for God to act if he chooses. Let me illustrate what I mean from this passage. The passage is bracketed by the same phrase. In verse 1, the number of disciples was increasing. 
In verse 7, the number of disciples was increasing. But verse 7 adds rapidly. Something has happened that has cleared the way for God to act with greater liberty. The number of disciples is already increasing before these events occur. We've seen that in the preceding chapters. 3,000 were added at Pentecost. The church had 5,000 men in it after Peter healed the lame man and preached in the temple. More and more men and women were added as the believers continued to meet daily in Solomon's colonnade in the temple precincts. Scholars think that by the time of this complaint over the food distribution, there may have been as many as 10,000 believers. That would be perhaps 10% of the whole population of Jerusalem, part of this new church. The number of disciples is already increasing before these events occur. But when this problem is dealt with, the number of disciples in Jerusalem continues to increase even more rapidly. Not only that, but a large number of priests become obedient to the faith. That is to say, they're not just expressing a a passing interest in Jesus. They become obedient. They become practicing disciples, priests. How does this happen? It happens because God chooses to act. But it's apparent that the actions of the church clear the way for God to act. Had they failed to live up to their calling, had they failed to live up to the teaching of Jesus, they would have hindered God acting in this way. So, on account of what happens here, the word of God spread, the number of disciples increased rapidly, and a large number of priests came to faith. This passage is not a rule, do this and your church will grow, but it is a good model for us. If we act as we see the church acting here, we clear the way for God to act among us, if he chooses, with greater liberty. And what I think the passage gives us is seven steps for responding to grumbling. Number one, receive the complaint. Uh, There are two equal and opposite false responses to grumbling. Most people, when we're criticized, make too much of it. We get very hurt, we get defensive. And this is such a common response to criticism that the opposite reaction, uh, shrugging it off, it's, it's become a virtue. It's a, it's a form of praise when we say of someone, oh, it's like water off a duck's back to her. But ignoring grumbling can be equally destructive as fixating on it. In Acts chapter 6, the apostles do the right thing. They receive the complaint. Now, I should say here, there are occasions when as Christians we should not receive the complaints of others. The apostles do so because up to this point, they have been in charge of receiving and distributing the sharing that's going on between the believers. Remember, Luke told us earlier that when someone had something to give, they would put it at the apostles' feet. So it's right that the apostles receive this complaint because it's about something that they are ultimately responsible for. A lot of grumbling in churches, though, is not of this kind. 
instead of addressing a legitimate complaint to the appropriate person, we find someone who we think, well, they're going to side with us. And we grumble to them about what someone else is doing. Now, let me be clear. There is no place for this in the church. It divides and weakens the body. It dishonors you. It dishonors the one you are speaking about, and it dishonors the one you are speaking to. Jesus left us in no doubt about what to do when we have a legitimate grievance against another believer. It's in Matthew chapter 18. If a brother or sister sins against you, go and point out the fault just between the two of you. You go directly to the person with whom you have the problem, not to anyone else. In Acts 6, though, the apostles receive the complaint because they recognize the potential this grumbling has for creating disunity in the church. Any grumbling which pits one reasonable-sized demographic group in a church against another has the potential to undermine the unity of the church. In this case, on one side were the the Greek-speaking widows, Many of them would have lived much of their lives elsewhere in the Roman Empire, outside of the land of Israel, and they would have returned to Jerusalem to live only in their retirement. On the other hand were the Hebrew or Aramaic speakers who would have lived all their lives in Palestine. These groups didn't just speak different languages, they lived very different lives. They lived in cultural frameworks quite distinct from one another. The potential for uh, for claims of superiority or for feelings of inferiority was very great between these groups. In Vancouver today, uh, Chinese churches, for example, face similar potential for division along uh, linguistic and cultural lines. Uh, Cantonese-speaking congregations in predominantly Mandarin-speaking churches, or vice versa, or English-speaking congregations in either, with the added complication, of course, of congregations made up of first, second, and even third-generation immigrants. Now, our own church may not divide down these lines, but we certainly feel at times that the cultural distinctions between the moderns and the postmoderns, uh, the younger and the older, the long-term members and the recent arrivals. The point is, it's vital that we're able to receive the complaint of any group in the church if we're going to preserve our unity. And unity is incredibly important Remember the words of Jesus that we began with from Matthew chapter 5. If you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First, go and be reconciled to that person. Then come and offer your gift. If there's something between you and a brother or sister, stop worshipping and put it right. Isn't that extraordinary that Jesus would say that? And they would, of course, have remembered uh, Jesus' prayer for them, the apostles, on on the night of the Last Supper, that they would be one even as Jesus and the Father are one. 
They would have remembered too Jesus' words, by this all people will know that you are my disciples, that you have love for one another. Unity is not a nice thing for churches to aim for. It is essential if a church is to be a church. It is through our unity that others will see the character of God in us. So Luke repeatedly pointed us to the unity of the church in Jerusalem. Again and again, they were of one mind, they were of one heart, they had no needy persons among them. That unity here was being threatened. And so the apostles received the complaint. Step two, don't make excuses or apportion blame. There are a couple of hints here that those who are grumbling don't actually have a legitimate case. It may be that they perceived that they were being overlooked, when in fact, in light of the complexities of providing for so many people, with new people being added all the time to this church, there was little real ground for complaint. One hint that this might be the case is that Luke uses the same phrase, complained against that the Old Testament uses in Exodus chapter 16 in that passage that was so beautifully read for us just a little bit earlier. The people of Israel are in the wilderness and they're grumbling about Moses and Aaron's failure to provide them with anything to eat. Again, you see, the unity of God's people was under threat. And that passage is a stark warning about the damage that grumbling can do to the people of God. Another suggestion that the grumblers are off off the mark is that they aim their complaint not at those who are distributing the food, but at the Hebraic Jews. The Hebraic Jews, of course, are not responsible for its division. They're merely recipients themselves. But whether this complaint is legitimate or not, the apostles choose not to make any excuses. And they don't blame anyone for failing to do a good job of food distribution. The impulse when someone criticizes us to offer justifications, explanations, and excuses is very strong, isn't it? But the impulse to find someone else to put the blame on, well, that's even stronger. It is a mark of Christian maturity that we do not need to feel, that we, sorry, that we do not feel the need to explain ourselves to others, even if we are falsely accused. And it is a mark of Christian maturity that we can admit when we make mistakes, that we can embrace them and learn from them. So step two for responding to grumbling, don't make excuses or apportion blame. Step three, discern a way forward. Verse two, So the twelve gathered all the disciples together and said, it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. Brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them. Isn't it fascinating that the apostles don't begin, brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you. I mean, that's their plan. That's what they have in mind to do but that's not where their response begins. It would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. 
See, they're not just reacting to a problem and coming up with an instant response. It's very easy for church leaders to end up spending all of their time fighting fires, rushing to deal with one problem after another problem after another problem. But church leaders aren't supposed to fight fires, they're supposed to start fires. Good church leadership is proactive, not just reactive. And proactive leadership begins in prayer. The first call on the church leader is to pray for discernment, to seek God's face, and to listen for his direction. And discernment begins by knowing your own role. Church leadership in a community the size of the Jerusalem church could easily have become completely impossible and the apostles being pulled just in a thousand different directions at once. Why did that not happen? Because they knew what Jesus had commissioned them to do. Two things, prayer and preaching. How did they come up with the idea of choosing seven others for this task? Well, they came up with this idea because they knew what they were called to do, and they couldn't do that if they tried to do this job as well. So they knew that they needed someone else. We'll turn this responsibility over to them, and we will give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. It is very tempting for leaders to meet the expressed needs of their followers. Very tempting to be the one who provides everything that's asked for. If I tried to do that for every email I received during the week, well, I would have about six weeks' work for every week. It's just not possible. Good leadership looks beyond what's asked for to what is needed, and it pro uh, pro provides for that, for what is needed. And we only know what's really needed if we're listening to God. And so the apostles discern uh, the way forward. Step four, aim for the real goal. It's very tempting to deal with grumbling by simply doing whatever the complainer wants regardless of whether that complaint is justified or not. But to respond appropriately to grumbling, you need to identify the real issue. I remember a, a lady in a church that I served in the UK. She was always grumbling about one thing or another thing or another thing in the church. And whenever you would address one complaint, well, she would just start grumbling about something else. You see, what she was grumbling about wasn't the real issue. Eventually, we realized that she was grumbling quite often with, with some legitimacy because she had no power in the church to address things that, that she really thought should be dealt with. She was, in other words, a frustrated leader. So the leaders proposed that we made her a deacon. Well, I tell you, there was quite a degree of skepticism about that. She herself couldn't quite believe that we wanted her to serve in leadership. But she was superb as a leader. All the grumbling was gone, and she just worked and worked and worked on all of those issues instead of grumbling about them. What she was grumbling about wasn't the real issue. The real issue was that she was a frustrated leader. Uh, we resolved the issue when we changed our aim. 
We lifted our eyes from the grumbling and onto the person. And I suspect that's often a helpful thing to do, to think about the person, not the problem. In the case of the apostles, they realized that the issue at stake here was not food distribution. It was the, the unity of the church. And that shaped the way that they responded. Instead of meeting with the unhappy party, the, the Greek-speaking widows, they gathered all the disciples, all the believers together. If the goal is meeting the needs of the Hellenistic Jews, then you meet with the Hellenistic Jews and you work out a plan for what to do. But if the goal is unity, then you meet with everyone. You see, everyone's affected by disunity, not just the injured party. So everyone needs to be included in the solution. And that's why it's not just the Hellenistic Jews who choose what gets done. It's the whole church here. To come up with the right strategy for dealing with complaints, you have to aim at the right goal. Step five, offer a proposal. There are a couple of things I want you to notice about the proposal that the apostles make. Verse 3, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the Spirit and wisdom. We'll turn this responsibility over to them. The first thing I want you to notice is the qualifications that the apostles are looking for in those who are going to tackle this issue. Now, we have a terrible tendency as Christians to label some activities as spiritual and others as unspiritual or practical, or secular. Preaching the sermons, well, that's spiritual. And changing the light bulbs, maintaining the plumbing, uh, tending the church grounds, that's just practical. It's not spiritual work. If we're not careful, we can misuse this very passage to justify this division. The apostles do the spiritual work of prayer and preaching, and they get others to do their practical work of just waiting on tables. Now, if you've understood the passage this way, you've misunderstood it. The apostles make no distinction between these kinds of work. <coughs> what makes a task spiritual is whether or not it is done for the glory of God. Let me say that again. What makes a task spiritual is whether or not it is done for the glory of God. Remember, until now, it is the apostles who've been arranging the, the sharing of the church's resources with its needy members. They were the ones whose feet Jesus washed at the Last Supper when he said to them, now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. There is no task so menial that it cannot be a spiritual task. And remember, the task that the apostles are delegating is not the task of waiting on tables. It is the task of maintaining the unity of the church. So the qualities they ask the believers to look for in those they choose, are that they are known to be full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom. 
full of the Spirit. We're going to find as we read the New Testament that full of the Spirit is the fundamental qualification for any position of service in God's new community. Now, the other thing I want you to notice about the apostles and what they say here is that they offer a proposal. They don't make a decree. They don't tell everyone else how it's going to be. At this point, the apostles have huge power on account of the miracles that they've been performing that have drawn thousands of people to them. They've got huge authority. But when it comes to making a change in the way things are organized in the church, they make a proposal which they submit to the church. Luke is clear about this. The whole church were pleased by the proposal made by the apostles. In other words, the whole church had a say. It was submitted to them all. Now, it's tempting to conclude that this is how every church should make all of its decisions, but remember what I said at the beginning. This passage doesn't set down rules for us. It gives us a good model to follow. But what a lot we have to learn from that. So step five, offer a proposal. Step six, go the extra mile for the injured party. It seems to me that this is the heart of the matter. So if you've drifted off, it's time to to get back into the message and focus again. And it's the whole church here, not the apostles, who do this wonderful thing. They choose all seven of the men who are to organize the food distribution of the church. They choose all seven from among the Greek-speaking believers. How do we know this? Because all the names are Greek. Stephen, Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenaeus, and Nicholas from Antioch, a convert to Judaism. He isn't even a Jew by birth, Nicholas. They put these Greek speakers in charge of the food distribution for everyone the Greek speakers, and the Hebrew speakers. They don't need to do things this way, but they do. And it sends a clear signal that those in the Greek-speaking section of the church are the equals of everyone else. Jesus said, if anyone asks you to go with them one mile, go with them two. He was referring to a a Persian military practice. It had been adopted by some in the Roman Empire as well, where a soldier could require someone to carry their pack for a mile. It seems as though that's probably what was happening when Simon of Cyrene is forced to carry Jesus' cross. Jesus says, if they demand that you go one mile, go two, the proverbial extra mile. In Acts 6, the believers are asked to sort out the problem of food distribution, but they also promote to positions of authority Greek-speaking believers. Before this point, there's only been Hebraic Jews, the apostles, who are in positions of leadership. This is a big moment for the church. They go the extra mile. They do more than is required of them. And that's what really undermines the grumbling. That's what really ensures the unity of the church. Go the extra mile for the sake of the injured party.
And finally, step seven, give those addressing the issue the authority to do so. How often do governments, under pressure over one issue or another, appoint a commission and then do nothing whatever about the recommendations of that commission? The easiest way to diffuse grumbling is to promise that you're going to address it. But unless those appointed to do so have teeth, unless they have the authority to act, nothing gets done. So when the believers had chosen these seven, in verse 6, they presented them to the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. And that laying on of hands is the sign of the transfer of authority to those seven. Commissioned, they can now act in the name of the whole church. And so as a consequence of all of this, the way was clear for God to act, and Luke tells us that he did in verse 7. So the word of God spread, the number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. Scholars estimate that there were about 10,000 Levites at this time, somewhere between 2,000 and 8,000 ordinary priests. And these would be people who had a, a regular job, except for two weeks of the year, when they would serve in the temple, and they'd officiate over all that goes on there. Why do priests start to come to faith in large numbers after this? Could it be because they see thousands gathering for worship in their temple, filled with new joy, filled with the Holy Spirit? Could it be because instead of the, the temple authorities who they worked for, who were all about taking from the people, they saw among the believers provision for the poor and the needy, just exactly as God had promised would be in the Scriptures? Could it be that where first century Judaism had fractured into more and more and more competing factions, they saw the church able to heal the divisions between people in Jerusalem? Who would have thought that the way that we respond to grumbling could be so important? Will you pray with me? Lord, we confess that all of us have at one time or another said things that we shouldn't have said. And in particular at this moment, I just want to give a moment for us to confess before you times when we have said something about others in this church that we should not have said, times when we've grumbled to somebody else instead of going and speaking to that person. Lord, we're conscious that doing that breaks the unity of this church. That it upsets you. That it offends your spirit. And that it hinders you working and moving freely through us as you choose.
Lord, we, we dearly and deeply desire to see you move more powerfully among us. And we ask, Lord, that you would speak to each of us now. Is there something that we need to put right? Is there a relationship that we need to put right, Lord? Is there someone we need to speak with? Soften our hearts, we pray, Lord. Help us to become those who are not complainers, not grumblers, but who build your church, who seek unity, and who serve one another humbly and love one another as you've called us to. Go the extra mile for one another. Lord, we pray that you would move powerfully, even today, to make us much more united as a church, that your will might be done, that your name might be glorified as we've sung earlier in this service, and that your kingdom may grow. And we ask all these things in the precious name of our Savior Jesus, who forgives us all our sins. Amen. You've been listening to the First Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. For more sermons and information about our church's services and programs, please visit firstbc.org.